Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That? The podcast that tries to leave you with one little teensy nugget of information you can bring to the pub and wow your friends with. I think that's our mission statement, isn't it, Neil? Yes, it is. And we should introduce ourselves. I'm Neil Delamere and he's... Dave Moore is my name. You'll find us both on Instagram. He's at Neil Delamere Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM. And the show is at Why Would You Tell Me That? Wherever you're listening to this, we'd really love it if you would follow, subscribe, whatever the language is around that on whatever platform you like, listen to us. And you'll be the first to know all about the latest Why Would You Tell Me That? happenings. And we are really proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. Uh, what's very exciting about this week's episode is that I know absolutely nothing about this. Neil Delamere, what are we talking about? So it's my turn this week to give you a little nugget, a little ingot of information, if that's the right term, that you can use in the pub. And I'm very excited about this one because in part two, we'll be talking to Siobhan Matheson. Now, Siobhan Matheson is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology in the University of New Mexico. I don't know if you know this about me, but if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, I would have loved to have been an anthropologist. I find that sort of stuff fascinating. And you work with a man who I think studied anthropology no, in no, university, didn't he? Was that archaeology? He studied archaeology because what happened was he watched, he watched Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. He immediately <laughs> assumed that by studying <laughs> archaeology, he would find himself in situations where he was running through tunnels as giant stones tried to crush him as he rescued this long forgotten beautiful piece of some kind of Incan gold whereas in reality he was in a ditch in uh, Kildare and was wet and cold and going this is a terrible career choice. I think we can only be grateful he didn't see Lara Croft. I feel Dermot's look would have been much different if he had seen (laughs) Lara Croft Tomb Raider instead of Indiana Jones. (laughs) That was before his time. (laughs) I would have liked to have been an anthropologist. I find that world fascinating. And we're going to talk to Siobhan. By the way, we got Siobhan because I emailed her. She is American and I emailed her and and went greetings from Ireland and full on fiddly diddly deeded up, assuming that she would have Irish heritage and said, this is the one podcast you're going to do that is pronounce your first name properly. And she was straight back onto us. We're going to talk to her about uh, the Mwasuo people in China. Mwasuo? Yeah, it's a small ethnic group and they live in a matrilineal society do you know what a matrilineal society is no i don't uh i would have assumed something along the lines of matriarchal but if it was matriarchal then it would be called matriarchal so no what is matrilineal they've all seen the matrix Oh, amazing. That's it. No, it's the inheritance and the property passes through the maternal line. The kids live with the maternal family and the tradition is not to get married in the traditional sense, but they practice something called walking marriages, which I'll let Siobhan explain later on. 
Fascinating. Moisseau, yes. you said. Okay. Different to how we would have grown up in Western European society. So it's just nice to explore a different way of living and think she's going to be great. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. So for part one, Dave, I was thinking about China, right? And I was thinking about how development there might affect its various different peoples. So for part one, we're going to talk about development and development all around the world, right? Excellent, right. Now, 2020, I know you love a fact. I do. I I, I dine out on facts left, right and centre. 2020 was the year that uh, scientists estimated, right, that the mass of everything the people have built and made from concrete, from roads, from bridges, from houses, glass, metal, skyscrapers, plastic bottles, clothes, computers, all of that. Yeah. 2020 was the year that that was, became roughly equal to and then surpassed the mass of all living things on Earth. Whoa. So the weight pushing down on the Earth's crust of the things we have made is now mass, bigger yeah. than the things that were already there. Yes. The... Animals, plants. So, including all of the trillions of bugs, all of the billions of trees, billions of animals, billions of us, and everything that's living, then then if you add up all of those weight, we've now equaled and surpassed that with man-made things. Yes. Think about this, right? So, Ron Milo of the Wiseman Institute of Science, and this is in Israel, and his colleagues, they examine changes in global biomass and human-made mass, from 1900 to the present day, and this is what they came up with. I think that, like, it makes the scientists sound slightly mad, though, isn't it? Like, their colleagues are just popping out for lunch, and they're just like, we're just going to the canteen. Is there anything you want? What are you up to? We're just weighing everything on Earth. It just makes <laughs> you sound <laughs> like you're... Yeah, it's like, it's like child, child science. What are you doing? I'm weighing everything in the whole world to see how heavy it is. And then I'm going to watch a Sonic the Hedgehog movie. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we couldn't measure Sonic because he kept jumping off the scale. And we're like, come on, Sonic. We're doing a project here. And I said to my wife, I said, I, I told her this fact. And she goes, yeah. well, they couldn't have weighed every single animal on Earth. This is some sort of model, I'm assuming. Like they couldn't have weighed all the grizzly bears on Earth. And she's making tea. Uh, but I said to her, no, actually, it was, it was self-reported. Um, they sent out loads, <laughs> loads of questionnaires. And I caught her in a moment. She was like, what? Oh, yeah, loads of questionnaires. Like, and all the bears are mortified. Mortified. They're all like, well, you could have asked me after it hibernated. I've been stuffing myself with salmon for ages. Janet ate Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> she was like, hold on. And then I got a clip around the head. But yeah, right. No, so, it's about models. So. It's about okay, modeling. Models, right. Okay. Okay. So they can, they can estimate the organic living mass on earth and then they can also i presume because again even with the man-made creations that that we're talking about roads and bridges and 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 buildings and everything they also haven't gone and weighed each of those so it is a case of going well we know roughly that this much of a built-up area will weigh this and then there's that much on this place and whatever else exactly they they obtained anthropogenic uh mass estimates from recent work in the field of industrial ecology and satellite data and global vegetation models provided the stuff on global biomass ships. There's one problem. There's one problem, Neil. There's one problem. Yeah. Are they counting the underground layers of alien-made uh, homes for the aliens what live near the Earth's core that, of course, have been here for millennia that we don't know about, except we do know about them. Like, come on. Well, well, the aliens are the people doing the survey, Dave. Ah, uh, that's what it that's, is. They want to know. Of course the they want to know. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, when they're taking over the planet, they need to know what they're buying. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. they're the people who've done the service. Perfect, perfect. I'll give you some more facts. 90% of the living world by weight, meanwhile, uh, is composed of plants, mostly trees and shrubs, and 90% of that artificial world is your guitars, Dave. <laughs> it's actually your guitars. <laughs> to, people, to people who don't know, you should probably give them context, which is I am an avid guitar collector indeed some may say an addicted guitar collector and yes oh, i think there's a problem i think there'll be a channel 5 documentary about you someday soon there will do you know why it won't be because of the number of guitars it will be because of the fact that i will disappear and they will find me <laughs> underneath the plastic grass in my back garden when my wife actually realizes how many i really have and not the amount i've told her i have so did you just say plastic grass oh yeah so you're adding to the world of man-made stuff yeah, you actually I replaced grass yeah. with plastic grass. <laughs> I Don't pretend you didn't know about all these facts, Dave. You've actually <laughs> materially affected it. I am amazed that 90% of the organic mass on, on Earth is plants and trees. I don't know trees why. Trees and shrubs. I, sorry, trees and shrubs. I just thought, I thought we animals, particularly insects, because I know there's some terrifying stats about how much all of the insects in the world weigh and all that kind of stuff, but I thought that they would make up a, a more sizable percentage than 10, but lo and behold. This seems to be a fairly recent problem. At the start of the 20th century, right, the mass of human-created stuff mm. weighed in 35 billion tons, only 3% of the global biomass. Okay. Now we're doing 30 billion tons a year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't – like, is, is it a bad thing? I don't know. Like – Maybe this is well. Just... In terms of its usefulness, I think this this scientists have said this is a good uh, example or a good, I suppose, educational point. To, okay. To, it, it, like it makes loads of headlines and it tells lots of people that we are in this era of human made dominance over the world. But in terms of practical applications, I don't know how, what there is of this. Yeah, and it's only a matter of time, I suppose. You know where it becomes an issue. I mean, we all we already know that climate change. And all of that is a massive issue. But I suppose it becomes an issue when the man-made stuff is starting to not only weigh more than the global biomass, but therefore the global biomass is ceasing to exist because we have paved roads, built bridges, yes. made urban areas and all that. Greta Thunberg would be proud of that deduction, I think. Cheers, Greta. What I was hoping for was could they identify the exact moment that all the stuff we've made surpasses all the... Mm. biomass like you know the ten thousand customer in a supermarket i just quite like the idea of some lad putting loose chippings into a hole somewhere right? and he just <laughs> he just put the loose chippings in and then suddenly balloons come up and then greta thunberg jumps out with a shovel and hits him because you have stolen my childhood or, or some like mafioso is putting a body into the concrete foundations of a building and then the scientists are like, we've done it. You've pushed it over the top. You've poured that last man-made material. Hooray. Technically, actually, by killing the other guy, you've actually reduced the weight of the organic material as well. It's a double whammy. <laughs> when we're thinking about this sort of stuff, right, I mentioned to you, you know, weight and mass. Yes. yes. But let me ask you this question. How do you define a kilogram, for example? One uh, percent of me. <laughs> that's my definition of it are you 100 kilograms i well do you know what i don't know because i don't weigh myself i i i at one point i found myself at 108 kilograms and i thought 
whoa, this seems like a lot. Uh, then I, I love the abdication of responsibility in the phrase, I found myself oh, at 108 kilograms. 100% found myself there. Uh, I, uh, I, I ate better. I exercised. I got it down to the mid-90s. And then I basically just said, sure, that's grand. And like, I'm a big guy and I have thighs that, you know, anyone would be jealous of and calves that go on for days. So I've always I've always got an, a big number uh, in terms yeah. of kilograms. So I'm going to say, yeah, one percent of me. I might be 96. I might be 101. I'm not sure, but I'm in and around. The Israeli scientists have you down at 90. <laughs> you didn't realize that, did you? They, mo- <laughs> the they modeled that incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sneaked in a wager when you were asleep. <laughs> Well, the story of the kilogram is very interesting. Okay. It's technically not 1% of you because they needed something that was a little bit more static than that. Right, fair. So in Paris, in the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, there is a platinum iridium cylinder. And it's under two bell jars. It's the international prototype of the kilogram, the IPK. Right. And all mass measurements anywhere on the planet were traceable to that one unit in the Pavillon de Bretagne. So other countries like, would have copied that cylinder and they were used to set the standard for that country. It's called Le Grand K. Le Grand K. Le Grand K. So that's really interesting. So then so then somebody decided definitively this is what a un kilogram is going to be this. Yeah. And then everything else is going to be. So I, I just wonder how like, like OK. I'm I'm glad now, you know, whenever it is hundreds odd years later that we have this standardized method of weighing things. At one point, was there a discussion where the the French lads were going, we are going to make a, a kilogram over here. And like the Germans were like, no, we are going to make a Weisselgram over here. And like, was somebody deciding who won the battle of weights? I think it was Louis XIV who originally kind of went for the metric system, wasn't it? I'm not sure. But what I think what will surprise you about this is when do you think that they stop using that? This physical artifact. What do you think? I mean, we've had, okay, we put a man on the moon in the 1960s. Sure, sure. We had space travel, we've had computers, you know, Babbage had that computer. Come on, you know. When do you think we stop using this cylinder, a metal yoke, as the defining artifact? Like, like a long time ago, in the 1930s. 2019. Ah, stop. 2019. What did we do in 2019? What better idea did we have than the Grand K? You had to ring up the French and go, is it still a kilogram? And they went, wait. <laughs> and then they would just put a hang up the phone. So what, what do we do now then? They needed to get more accurate. Uh, and also, as a, as a contributor to the article I read pointed out, what happens if the Bureau burns down and this thing melts? What if we lose the Grand K? Like, what do we do then? We lose the standard measure of the kilo. No, they'll be coming over and going, listen, we need 1% of you. Just what can we take? <laughs> like, okay, four of my toes. I'll give you that and you can sort it out. <laughs> Dave, have you read The Merchant of Venice? Yes. Well, do <laughs> you know the pound of flesh thing? Slightly <laughs> like that, except it's a kilo of Dave. It's a reworking. That sounds like something the students that bring to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. You know that? <laughs> it's a true. reworking of The Merchant of Venice where we cut a kilo off Dave Moore. It does sound like something I would do when, if I miss my target on Operation Transformation as well. Like, <laughs> you miss, you miss you missed your target on this weight loss program. Did I? Did I really? Well, what is a kilo? I mean, nobody knows because someone set fire to the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. Yeah, I kind of assume at this point there would be something other than a physical object. At this point, I assume they would have done this, you know, when there were computers. But there's just there's just some kind of mathematical equation that goes. There is. Oh, thank yeah. God. 
the kilogram is now defined in terms of the second and the meter based on fixed fundamental uh, constants of nature. That's what they've done all this now. It's all constant constants of nature that they can judge things off. You said words there, and I'm sure they make sense to some physicists somewhere, but uh, I preferred when there was a cylinder under a jar, to be honest. Okay, all right. Well, what's the basic basic (laughs) unit of time then? It's the second, right? Yes. So that was once defined as one eighty-six thousand four hundredth of an average day. So that's what it was. Okay. But there's an issue with that because of the vagaries of the Earth's rotation. Yeah. That's then difficult to measure precisely. Well, the average day, yeah, the average day could mean anything. I mean, like I've had days that feel like they've gone on for months, and I've had days going, "How is this over already?" Yeah, exactly. Dolly Parton, very much strict hours. Dolly was, <laughs> yeah. wasn't she? Very strict. Yeah. Very strict hours. It's now defined as being the time taken for a cesium atom to vibrate nine billion one hundred ninety-two million six hundred thirty-one thousand seven hundred seventy times. That's a second. Sorry. Sorry, that is literally the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I know, I know you scientists think you're very impressive telling me this. That is so stupid. You've got to wait for something to vibrate nine million times, count them, and then go, that was the second. Was it, Bob? Because it took you 45 years to count it, and the world's moved on. You idiot. Like, that's ludicrous. Wow. Do you know when we're looking for that hook? It's just Dave slams science on the front of this. Uh, just particularly Bob, like, not science. Yeah, just, like. Dave calls out various physicists called Bob. <laughs> I can I can see this. this is going to be a, fight, a car park. You're going to be circling each other like electrons around the middle of an atom. Uh, There's going to be three-minute rounds. God knows what atoms and vibrations they're going to use to measure that. This could be very interesting. I'm coming for you, Bob. Do you want to know what length is measured in the meter? Let me guess. No, I won't guess. I want you to tell me. First defined as one ten ten millionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. Also, yeah, unhelpful. Then it was replaced by a platinum bar in Paris. I quite like the idea that there is a bar and, you know, there was a platinum iridium cylinder. So, for, you know, it was replaced by a platinum bar held in Paris. So it was basically... That's a meter. Ça, c'est un mètre là-bas. Okay, yeah. so the French are all Regard. over this. I love this. Regard le, le meter. Okay, so, so they just went, okay, that length there, that's a meter. Yeah, but obviously, as I said, the kilogram was the last one measured using a physical artifact. So now a meter is <laughs> defined as the length traveled by light in a vacuum in one two of a second. Bob, I'm in the car park whenever you're ready. That's ludicrous, Bob. It took you 45 years to count the second, and now we need one 299 millionth of it? God, that is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so forget the metal bar that measured helpfully. Why didn't they just go into a, into a classroom and go, give us a lend of your meter stick? Because that's a meter. <laughs> <laughs> they were already there. They were mass-produced. Those T-squares. Just yeah. everybody walk around with T-squares. Yeah. How did Bob kill Dave in the end? Well, you wouldn't believe what he had in his pocket. <laughs> he just took out a bit of wood, nailed another bit of wood, and clattered them with it. <laughs> but we need like, we need these things because we need accuracy, Dave. Okay. Like pharmaceuticals need to be more and more accurate. Whereas you poo-pooing of Bob's approach to this sort of accuracy means I would worry about you. Like, yeah. Never, ever be a doctor. 10 milligrams. You need 10 milligrams stat. Ah. I've I've a heap of powder here. I mean, I'm just going to throw it in her face and see what happens. 
I haven't got time to be measuring things. Come on. I haven't got time to be measuring things. Regard the heap of power. <laughs> um, right, stick with us because we're going to be talking to an associate professor of uh, anthropology, Siobhan Matheson, in part two. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That Now? We are joined by Siobhan Matheson. Siobhan is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology in the University of New Mexico and is a director of the Mwasuo Health and Demography Project. Thanks for joining us, Siobhan. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we're going to start very basic because Dave, as he said, knows nothing about this general area at all. So let's start with the most basic question is who are the Mwasuo and what makes their culture so unique? The Moso are a um, population of around 40 to 50,000 agriculturalists in southwest China. They are I don't, unique. I don't know. Every population is unique. So mm. I guess among all other populations, they qualify as unique, too. They're well known to anthropologists because, number one, they are matrilineal, which means they pass their resources down a line of females rather than down a line of males or males and females, which is much more common. Um, and even more than that, they are supposed to be the only society known to man where they don't have an institutionalized form of marriage. Oh. Rather than marrying with a certificate or something that says this is your spouse and you owe everything to that spouse and you can't have relationships outside of that spousal relationship, they um, are well known for engaging in something called walking marriage in English. 
Zouhun in Chinese or Sisi in their local language, which is just a kind of non-contractual union where folks get together, they might have children out of the union, but they don't have any obligations to each other. Children that are born of the union belong to their, their mother's lineage rather than their father's. They may often not know who their father is, and the father has really variable engagement in the lives of the children. Wow. So that's why they're really famous. We're interested in them because um, outside of that, they also have a patrilineal subpopulation that lives separately in a geographically distinct area. Um, and they have all sorts of other things in common. They speak the same language. They have the same rites of passage. They were a common population, we think, um, as recently as 500 years ago. But something motivated this change, we think, from a matrilineal kind of organization to a patrilineal one, where the resources then move down the male line and they do practice institutionalized and exclusive forms of marriage. And so our questions have been really oriented around what drove those differences and um, what kinds of effects does that have, do those differences have on women and children in terms of welfare, social structure, demographic outcomes, and things like that. Okay, so to, to go back in time, where did the matrilineal society come from? Do we know? Because as you said, it's, it's, it's rare, uh, possibly even unique to the Moscow people. So where did it originally come from? That's a great question. I don't. I think the jury's out on that. A lot of our research has been focused on that. I actually think it's not very rare. You know, the most recent statistics indicate that 17% of populations are matrilineal, actually. Um, and that's a pretty substantial fraction of populations, if you think about it. The common hypotheses for why uh, matrilineal societies exhibit the kind of structure that they do is tied to um, subsistence. So for example, horticultural societies where you have a small garden, but not one that's really intensively plowed or irrigated, those horticultural societies are often matrilineal. Mm. Societies where men are engaged in kind of protracted forms of warfare or fishing away from the home are also often matrilineal or what we call matrifocal because men aren't away. Women are sort of reliant on each other to um, run the household and things like that. So there are these sort of ideas that um, matrilineal social structure is linked to aspects of the ecology that generate certain forms of subsistence, if that makes sense. Yeah. So say there's a walking marriage between my mom and my dad. I, I, as a child, then grow up in my maternal house with my brothers and sisters and my mom and my th that line of the family. I take her surname, but I would have some degree of male influence from my maternal uncles. That's right. And so we would consider that to be different in the West than in that part of the world. Whereas in some ways, the way we get to know each other in the West and in Mwaso society is kind of similar. Yeah. So historically, I think that is true. There's a great review by an anthropologist, Clifford Geertz, where he actually compares um, the way that this society is described to like urban millennials, I guess he wouldn't have called it at that time, but anyway, urban youths in New York or something, right? Where like you begin dating fairly casually and you have a relationship and you may or may not introduce that person to your parents, right? If you're not quite ready for that. And then, you know, in this really famous book about the Moso, they'll call this the furtive visit and act as if it's something very separate from what we see elsewhere. 
Gradually, you get more involved with this person and you might bring them home. And then we call this the conspicuous visit, which is not so different from, again, when you get more stable in your relationship with your partner. And then eventually, if children are born from the union, a couple may actually cohabitate and the fathers can get really um, invested in their children's upbringing also. So again, there's this real difference, I think, between what happens in practice and what's institutionalized within the kind of norms, structure of norms in the society. And I'm not saying that doesn't matter because I think it does. I think if you have a certificate that says you're married and if you're the breadwinning man, part of your role is to give some of that bread to your children. That's different from a society that doesn't dictate it in the same way. But in practice, um, that kind of escalation of involvement is also evident in the case of the Moso. And would generations of women live in the, the households so that you would have children, you know, parents, grandparents, and, and the, obviously I, I presume the the elder matriarchal figure would be the, the senior person in the house? Yeah, so there is um, often a three and sometimes even four uh, generation structure in the Moso household. And yeah, that maternal grandmother, and she might have a sister or even a cousin in the household, depending on how large the household is, um, often would be the most important person in the house. And you know, it's interesting, if you look at the household structures, they actually reflect this importance of the woman. So for example, it's really common among Chinese ethnic minorities, and there are a lot. There are 55 ethnic minorities, so China is actually exceptionally diverse. People don't often realize that. But among these minorities, you'll often see that there's like a, these two posts that hold up the main sort of room of the household. And in the case of the Moso, they call it the grandmother room, actually. Um, and one side will be the male side and one side will be the female side and one is more important than the other. Yeah. And they're actually flipped for the Moso. The women are on the left and the men are on the right and the woman pole is considered more um, important. So you can see it actually in the structure of the way that the home is built and lots of other things like that sort of underscore um, how important women are for that society. What I find fascinating is you mentioned there are another group and they have a patrilineal society and you're obviously working with a matrilineal society, but you have, a, a, you know, almost like a case study so you can compare and contrast. And you've looked at how one society's uh, culture and, and, and way of living affects their health. And Dave, I think this is going to blow your mind. Okay. What have you found? Yeah, this is the coolest result I probably found in 15 years of working um, with any any kind of data anywhere. Um, we found that in the matrilineal case, the um, health of women is improved relative to their health in the patrilineal case. And that's the really kind of overreaching way of stating what we found in actuality, which was that two uh, markers of long-term um, chronic health problems, one is CRP, it's called C-reactive protein this is something that anytime you go to the hospital for some sort of acute problem, they're going to check it because it indicates that there's some sort of inflammation. And oftentimes if people are really stressed or they've got sort of background chronic disease burden or something like that, they'll have elevated um, CRP, elevated inflammation. So we looked at that and we looked at their hypertension just using a blood pressure cuff. And we found that women had lower CRP and they have lower um, hypertension in matriliney than they do in patriliney. And interestingly, our results 
actually are suggestive that this also extends to men. Both genders actually do a bit better in matrilineal, but our statistical evidence only supports that for women. So it looks like the women statistically are kind of pivoting around um, where the men are, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, that is mind-blowing. So, so literally they are healthier women because they live in a matrilineal society. And you can compare and contrast because there's another population right there. Yeah. And that's the only difference roughly between the two. Yeah, that's sort of our take-home message. Um, it's something that's been hypothesized for a really long time, actually. Um, some of the earliest papers I can find about this that are really explicit about that are from the 1980s. Um, and the idea, I think, sort of generally is that when women are in positions of authority or they have better access to resources, better forms of social support, that they use those in ways that are, that are different from the ways that men might use them. So often we might think, like, maybe I can turn the question to you. If you guys have lots of money and power and social support, you know, what do you think you're going to do with it versus what do you think um, your spouse, if you have one, and your spouse is a, you know, a woman, what do you think they might do with it, right? And we think that women often are more inclined to um, devote those kinds of resources and support toward their children and their own health as opposed to other kinds of things. Yes, well, as N Neil was saying to me earlier on that I need to stop buying guitars, yeah. so that's exactly what I would do with my resources, whereas I'm sure my wife would look after our children <laughs> yes. that much better yeah. than I'm currently doing. Your guitar doing. and sneaker room might actually be given over to something more useful than that. The children don't need to sleep in one bunk bed between four of them. I should really give them a room each It's setting at this them point. up for later life, Dave. It's building resilience. <laughs> um, so has mainstream society, particularly during the earlier communist period, tried to affect change and tried to affect and, and said to them, don't live like this, live like this? Yes, they absolutely did. So there have been a number of different campaigns um, in a very Chinese style where it comes really top down. You know, folks want to make the ethnic minorities interface with the Han majority in a different way. And they believe some family structure is better. And by the way, I don't think this is exclusive to China. There are things like this in Amer recent American history, actually, right, where we talk about the value of marriage and exclusive marriage and what that means for different kinds of family structures. But anyway... Um, there were numerous campaigns um, to require MOSO individuals that had been in these non-institutionalized, um, non-contractual unions to get married um, and register their marriages with the Chinese state. And if you talk to people on the ground about it, there are some people were effectively, you know, cohabitating and don't really mind if you put a piece of paper to that or not. For some other folks who really wanted to maintain the separation that's more normative, I think it felt much more catastrophic, I think, for the ways that they wanted to live their lives. Now, you know, we've been working with the MOSO for 15 years, and there are still lots of folks who um, would report their unions as falling under this category of zohun or walking marriage rather than marriage. So I think the long-term effects of those um, policies are probably not as monolithic as the Chinese state might have hoped that they would be back in the day. Well, if they didn't affect the change that they wanted, you know, the, the, the central government, has tourism affected the change that uh, the Communist Party would have wanted? Yeah, that's something I hypothesized um, about in 2010. And I think in the long run, my if I had to put money on this, I'd still put it there that 30, 40, 50 years from now, 
there are going to be more families that adopt a more, not patrilineal, I don't think, but a more bilateral kind of structure in the same way that your families may be, that is more common in Euro-American societies now. Because as people get more money, they become more autonomous. They don't rely on these really large networks of kin in the same way anymore. And I think as that happens, you find this kind of nucleation of households where people are involved in these kind of more familiar sort of nuclear units with a mom and a dad and a couple of kids. So I think in the long run, that's likely to happen. In reality, in the last 15 or so years that I've been working there, the movement away from matrilineal household structure that we um, usually think is associated with that particular norm, the movement away from that has been less strong than I anticipated. So there is this kind of cleavage to the matrilineal norm and structure. People, I think the tourism, the thing that's interesting about tourism that's oriented around culture is that it also reinforces um, people cleaving to the culture that brings that income in, right? And so some people um, still feel very strongly that that's their identity as a culture. And that's that, that is what distinguishes them from surrounding ethnic groups. Um, and that's also what helps to pay the bills. And so, in fact, there's still um, quite a lot of variation in household structure. And it might mean moving in that direction, but much more slowly than I thought, actually. And you mentioned, the, obviously, the incredible statistic about their health. But are there other cultural or psychological or spiritual or, or other other benefits to living in this matrilineal society that are maybe a little bit less quantifiable than, you know, testing for CPR or hypertension? But are they, you know, is it is it obvious that, you know, because they have a matrilineal society, this happens or, you know, whatever the examples You know, be. I think stay tuned for that. We're um, still trying to figure that out. I think we have lots of ideas about where that might go, but our quantitative evidence right now, um, we're still sort of building up. We have shown that there are some hints toward what we call gender reversals um, in social, the ways that people are using their social networks, so their friendships and things like that. So we see women actually supported by larger social networks in matriliney than they are in patriliney, and that's the opposite of what we often expect, actually. Um, there are other researchers that have shown that the ways that women and men use language are also reversed in terms of even like the harshness of the sounds that they're producing, which is really interesting. Wow. They're, I'm happy to put you in touch with those folks because I find that really mind blowing. Like it's just top to bottom, everything that you look at, there's this real special um, place for women in this community that we don't necessarily see elsewhere. There are folks that do um, economic games with them and they find that women in the MOSO are less risk averse than they are in many patrilineal contexts. And so I think it's pervasive, right? The way that the structure affects everyday life and welfare and outcomes is pervasive. But in our research so far, we've only been able to pick it up in these health markers um, and in social networks. And we're still looking um, for other kinds of evidence. The way the world has developed over millennia, you know, the majority of us live in these patrilineal, patriarchal, or, or uh, bilateral communities. But I wonder, are there lessons to be learned from the matrilineal that we may be able to learn and that in the future there may be a movement towards a, a better type of, of, of uh, hierarchy? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about work that comes from an evolutionary perspective, which is how we approach these issues, is that we do anticipate that kind of flexibility that you're talking about, that if 
ecologies change or people's situations change, their economic circumstances change, that they can adopt a whole variety of different kinds of social structures. And matrilineage is certainly one among many that people might um, adopt. And that, that would have consequences in terms of welfare and female leadership and um, outcomes for children's education and all sorts of things. I think the historical piece of that matters too. So if you are Irish and you suddenly move into a matrilineal sort of family structure, that's very likely to look different than a, you know, a population that has a very recent or a much lengthier period of matrilineal history, right? Because, you know, you might be a little bit more constrained by the kinds of um, patrilineal sort of influences that still affect the way that you live your life in a way that another society might. So exactly how that turns out in each individual case, I don't know. But I think your instincts about flexibility and people adopting different structures, I think what you're saying is what's natural, that we can do all sorts of different things depending on what's necessary. Yeah. The tendency when there is a smaller group and a larger group is we think, oh, the smaller group is always influenced by the larger group. But has Masuo culture in turn affected other cultures, even though there's only 40 or 50,000? I think so. For example, there's another ethnic minority called the Pumi that live very nearby. And uh, many of them now identify as Moso, even though they were born to Pumi families and they have adopted matrilineal um, household structures as a result of living nearby and maybe enjoying that kind of um, sort of familial organization. So I think it can happen. That's the one case I know of where the evidence is really um, at least strongly suggestive that the Moso are directly influencing somebody else's culture. But the potential for that beyond there is is definitely there. We've learned one thing from doing this podcast and the various readings that we've done dur during the various episodes is that humans will find something that works for them. Our one uh, overarching thing that we uh, do well is adapt. And maybe we, like you said, Dave, maybe we will end up in a, a mixture of matrilineal or patrilineal or whatever. Um, Siobhan, you've been absolutely fantastic. Thanks a million for talking to us today. Well, thank you both so much. And honestly, I mean, I love your conclusion. It's really great. It's the same one that we've come to many times ourselves. Thank you, Siobhan. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Dave. Yeah, that is the question I need to pose to you, Mr. Neil Delamere. Why would you tell me that about the Moswo tribe? Because I am always looking after you and I want to investigate a situation where you could lower your blood pressure <laughs> and your markers of inflammation. And if I have to re-engineer society for your benefit, I will do that. You see, this is why we're together, Neil. You just you look after me in ways nobody else can, not even my own mother in my matrilineal society. Uh, no, honestly, that was fascinating. I love, I know you said how passionate you are about anthropology, but I do love learning about cultures that we are not familiar with and cultures that yeah. uh, operate in a way that is distinct from our own. And, and not only is that our own, but I mean, of 80, 90% of the world operates yeah. a certain way. And then these guys do it a different way. And it's just fascinating. Basically, you learn that humans are given a set of circumstances and we just go, okay, right, we're going to adapt to that set of circumstances. Yes. This is how we live and that's how you live over there. And this works for us and that works for you. But we can learn something from each other, which is brilliant. And Siobhan was great. She was brilliant. And as we all become so homogenous, you know, the, the difference in cultures between 
different countries and we're all gravitating towards an English-based internet metaverse or whatever it is, yeah. it is still great to hear that there are people like Siobhan investigating and studying separate cultures, different cultures, uh, and, and then bringing that information back to the homogenous society of us here in Western. Uh, you you want to go there. It does. Are we, going, I, are we going on a trip to Hunan province? I think we could do We could do a couple of shows in Hunan province and write I it think, off as a business expense, couldn't we? I, th I think we could. <laughs> I think we could. Okay, so it's your turn next week. What are you going to tell us about? Well, actually, next week is the final episode of Aww. season one. I know, sad times. Uh, but actually, there's a severe danger we may never return for season two. Not because we don't want to do Why Would You Tell Me That? Or the people aren't listening to Why Would You Tell Me That? But in the next episode, I will tell you how likely it is that we're all going to perish when a giant asteroid hits our planet. Hooray! <laughs> we're <laughs> all going times. to die. So you better download all of the previous 11 <laughs> podcasts in this series before that happens. All right, talk to you next week. Maybe it could happen between now and then. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.